You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we wrap up our series on German scientist, traveler, and explorer Alexander von Humboldt. Last time, we covered Humboldt's Russian expedition, the final major journey he undertook in his lifetime. By the time he returned, he was 60 years old, and going out exploring was just not in his future. This episode is unique, then, because we don't really have places to go and adventures to discuss, but we do have some great stuff to talk about regarding Humboldt. We will break things down as such. First, we will talk about the rest of Humboldt's life. This will include a look at Cosmos, Humboldt's final epic work. And then second, we will discuss the legacy of Humboldt, which is no small task. So let us get going. The year was 1830, and Humboldt had just returned from his Russian expedition. The Prussian king, Friedrich Wilhelm III, insisted that Humboldt remain in Berlin, a place that Humboldt did not like. He preferred the more progressive scientific and artistic atmosphere found in Paris. But the king enjoyed having the encyclopedia-like mind of Humboldt at his disposal. Need advice on the politics of some far-off place? Ask Humboldt. What about geography or philosophy questions? Well, you can ask Humboldt. Finances, history, art? Ask Humboldt. He was the Siri of the 19th century. The good thing was that Humboldt arranged to go back to Paris every year for a few months, and doing so always energized him. King Friedrich Wilhelm III died in 1840, but his son, Friedrich Wilhelm IV, liked to have Humboldt around even more than his father. Humboldt would attend to the king at all hours, reading to him, answering questions, whatever was needed. Privately, Humboldt moaned about these responsibilities. He felt it was all beneath him. But his job at the Prussian court paid his salary, and money was always tight. As I said, Humboldt complained about the situation, but in many ways he embraced his influence with the king. Humboldt was not a typical court lackey. He disdained politics, but that does not mean that he did not push his own agendas and ideas when given the chance. Let us remember, Humboldt had come of age during the early days of the French Revolution. He felt a kinship to the ideals espoused at this time. Also, he admired the United States, equality, free thinking, all of that stuff. The Prussian crown was nothing like that. It was as conservative and staid as any monarchy in Europe, except for perhaps Russia. As a confidant to the king, Humboldt enjoyed promoting not just science and education, but social and political reforms. I mean, he wasn't a firebrand or anything, just the guy who could push buttons when he had the chance. Because of this, there were attempts to push Humboldt aside at various times. Some people thought him a liberal, poisoning the mind of the king. But in reality, King Wilhelm, both three and four, understood and accepted Humboldt's political leanings. 
both parties knew when not to discuss certain things or push provocative buttons. I want to note that when the revolutions of 1848 swept across Europe, including Berlin, it made for some awkward times for everyone. Humboldt wanted a united Germany, and he disliked the existing absolute monarchy, but he wanted a slow, gradual change. Violence and rioting, he felt, were counterproductive. And we can't forget, Humboldt was an aristocrat. He was Baron Alexander von Humboldt. Revolution could end the privileges that came with that status. Still, when the revolution did come to Prussia, Humboldt was sympathetic to the people on the streets and urged some sort of compromise to achieve peace and a path forward. He even marched in a parade honoring those who had died during the fighting, but he mostly kept his head down. By then he was nearly 80, and to be honest, he didn't trust any politician. They had disappointed him too often. The French Revolution had gone down some disastrous and bloody paths and ultimately faltered. Simon Bolivar, who Humboldt had inspired, had become a dictator. Even the Americans, who he admired so much, clung to slavery, a practice he abhorred. He called it a stain on the young nation. Now, we are jumping around chronologically in our story, and I want to back things up a bit and talk a little about Humboldt's personal relationships, mostly regarding his brother Wilhelm. Wilhelm's wife, Carolyn, had been a common bond between the two brothers, and when she died in 1829, it had crushed Wilhelm and deeply saddened Alexander. The Humboldt brothers grew closer after Carolyn's death, more so than any time since their childhood. The two men shared a lot in common beyond being blood relatives. They were both smart and had immense talent. Wilhelm was one of the finest linguists in Europe, as well as a diplomat, philosopher, and champion of education and learning. He and his brother would have had lots to talk about. But Wilhelm's health would slowly deteriorate after the death of his wife. He would die on April 8, 1835. He was buried next to Carolyn in the family plot in Berlin. Humboldt felt old, lonely, and abandoned after the death of his brother. His grief was acute, and of it he wrote, quote, I've never believed that these old eyes had so many tears left, end quote. With the death of his brother, Humboldt came to rely more and more on his servant, Johann Seifert. For all of his life, Humboldt was horrible with regards to dealing with money. He had blown his fortune long ago, and he relied on his salary from the Prussian government to get by, but he was notorious for not managing his finances. Seifert basically came to run Humboldt's household, but the man struggled to control his boss's spending. Humboldt just spent whatever he felt like it, and he often found himself without cash. He would then have to borrow and beg to get by. He once petitioned the king for a large sum of money to help pay his debts. The relationship between Humboldt and Seifert gets some mixed comments from historians. Some have painted Seifert as being manipulative and controlling, but it appears that Humboldt took advantage of the man at times, going months, even years, without paying him. In the end, Humboldt willed his estate to Seifert to cover everything that he owed him, and the relationship was close enough that Humboldt was godfather to Seifert's daughter. No matter the older Humboldt got, the more he would rely on Seifert. Anyhow, after Wilhelm's death, Humboldt would continue to cultivate a wide variety of relationships. In Berlin and Paris, he would meet with old friends and made new ones in the salons and lecture halls. As always, Humboldt enchanted his audiences. This was especially true in Paris, where he was revered by the populace, and he was free of his responsibilities at the Prussian court. He was known to travel from salon to salon in Paris, telling stories and giving talks, until well past midnight. Another reason Humboldt's visit to Paris were so important was that so many other people passed through the city. I mean, important people came to Berlin, but it was nothing compared to Paris. He got to interact with scientists, poets, artists, and so many others. And this wasn't just famous or important men and women. He loved to meet and promote young people, especially scientists. Another thing Humboldt did was to write to people, lots and lots of people. 
and they to him. If you remember, earlier in the series, I talked about Joseph Banks, the renowned naturalist. Banks had basically set up a worldwide network of scientists who constantly sent him specimens and data from all over the world. The two men would remain in contact up until Banks' death in 1820. Both believed that science was bigger than politics, and such work should be an international effort. During his life, Banks would help out Humboldt by reaching out to his contacts, asking for information that Humboldt was seeking. Well, Humboldt kept this sort of thing up in his lifetime. Perhaps not to the extreme of Banks, but he nurtured relationships all over the world and used those relationships to help himself and others. Sometimes he would write colleagues and ask them to send him plant or rock samples or sketches. One German artist heading overseas said Humboldt gave him an entire list of plants for him to paint. Other times, Humboldt simply kept in contact with old friends, such as Aimbon Plant, his companion throughout the American expedition. The two wrote to each other for decades. As Humboldt aged and his fame grew, he received thousands of letters each year, and he wrote thousands. And as I mentioned, Humboldt always was helping and encouraging others. If he liked an artist or a scientist or whomever, he would provide them with instruction and encouragement. He would advocate for people, helping to find them jobs and funding. To become a protege of Humboldt was a golden ticket. Nothing got a person's foot in the door faster than a letter of recommendation from Humboldt. Example, on the recommendation of Humboldt, three German brothers, Hermann, Adolf, and Robert Schlagenenweit, would get permission from the British East India Company to explore the mountainous regions of Central Asia, including the Himalayas, and study the Earth's magnetism. By the way, Humboldt would say his biggest regret in life was not being able to explore the mountains of Central Asia. He would have to live vicariously through the reports of people such as the Slagenite brothers. So we've talked about several aspects of Humboldt's life in the 1830s and all the way into the 1850s, but the big thing I want to mention now is his published works. As we've talked about throughout this series, Humboldt was putting out a ton of books and papers on a bunch of different subjects. These had made him famous. His Russian expedition would lead to two works. The first was a two-volume piece published in 1831. It was based on a series of lectures he gave on the subject. The second was a three-volume book titled Central Asia, which was published in 1843. Now, Humboldt would put out a variety of works in the last two decades of his life, but nothing would dominate his output more than the sprawling epic that he would call Cosmos, a sketch of the physical description of the universe. That is a pretty daunting title. The idea of Cosmos was born out of a series of 61 lectures he gave at the University of Berlin from November 1827 to April 1828. These lectures had been free to anyone and thousands had attended. They were wildly popular and successful. The term cosmos, by the way, is from ancient Greek. It is an alternative name for the universe or its nature or order. Using the word cosmos implies viewing the universe as a complex and orderly system. Thus, with cosmos, Humboldt was looking to bring together a formal and systematic written discourse on science and nature. This was everything Humboldt had learned in his lifetime. It was a unity of science, nature, and humanity. Humboldt informed his publisher about Cosmos in 1833, and people were excited about the work. Scientists from all over the world pledged their assistance in the project, including the greatest minds of the time. However, because of Humboldt's ambitions, it would actually take him time to write Cosmos. People, in fact, began to doubt if it would ever get published. The first volume would be finally released in 1845, and included a 100-page introduction, where Humboldt spells out his vision, with all of nature being a mass of living, evolving elements bound together in an intricate web. Volume 2 would follow in 1847. Three more volumes would follow, the final in 1862, three years after Humboldt's death. 
Cosmos really was an epic effort to literally describe the universe. One reviewer said that the breadth of the content was incomparable to any other publication. The first volume of Cosmos was Humboldt painting a general portrait of nature. Here, Humboldt described the physical nature of outer space and the Earth. In the second volume, he described the history of science. Humboldt would initially intend Cosmos to be two parts, but he kept writing and writing, expanding his thoughts as he went. In later volumes, he discussed astronomical knowledge and the Earth's physical properties, such as magnetism, earthquakes, and volcanoes. In the end, you could probably chunk the five volumes into three categories, celestial stuff, the Earth, and organic life. I want to stress that Cosmos was not an encyclopedia. This was far more than a collection of facts. Now, I am not going to go into depth about Cosmos. I really can't do it justice. Just know that it was groundbreaking work. Once Cosmos finally was published, people loved it. It was wildly ambitious and insightful. It was popular on its initial release, especially the first two volumes. It sold out and was published in just about every language in the Western world. It would enhance Humboldt's reputation all over the globe. The books were especially popular and influential in England and the United States. But praise for Cosmos wasn't universal. Some felt Humboldt bit off more than he could chew, taking on such a sprawling project. But the biggest criticism probably came from what Humboldt did not include in Cosmos, and that was God. Humboldt talked about the creation of the universe and the intricate and wondrous world that we lived in, yet he didn't talk about God. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, Humboldt didn't try to insert God or humanity at the center of the world. He doesn't dismiss God, but he just doesn't bring up God either. He was criticized by many for this, including the more prominent religious institutions, such as the Catholic Church. But as I said before, while Humboldt was skeptical about organized religion, he did not try to dismiss or disprove God. He even makes reference at times to a divine force or being, and he believed in the afterlife. He wrote this to a friend, quote, God constantly appoints the course of nature and of circumstances, so that including his existence in an eternal future, the happiness of the individual does not perish, but on the contrary, grows and increases, end quote. No matter, Cosmos would consume the rest of Humboldt's life, and it was wildly influential at the time. However, it didn't quite touch a nerve amongst people like Humboldt's writings about the Americas. It was seen as an incredibly important work, but it was not beloved like Humboldt's personal narrative. So, Humboldt would spend the last decade of his life working on the final three volumes of Cosmos. He was in his 80s at this time, and like all people that age, he slowed down but he never stopped writing. He wrote upwards of 2,000 letters a year in the last decade of his life. He also got up to 5,000 letters a year from people all over the world. One of my favorites was from an anatomy expert who had mistakenly heard that Humboldt had died. He asked for Humboldt's skull. When told of this, Humboldt replied, quote, I need my head for a little while longer, but later I would be only happy to oblige, end quote. So he wrote his books and letters. His intellectual appetite never sated. He was known to attend lectures at the local university, taking notes just like the kids a fifth of his age. He kept a small apartment in a house, the place filled with scientific instruments, manuscripts, drawings, stuffed animals, rock specimens, and other objects collected over the years. And there were shelves and shelves full of books. Interestingly, he didn't have a complete set of his own books as they were so expensive and money was always tight. Even in his 80s, Humboldt entertained guests providing aid to would-be scientists and encouraging those who called on him to travel and experience the world. Humboldt was a great believer in experiencing the world. He noted that Americans seemed to always want to come and visit him, like he was a tourist attraction. He complained, but the complaints were half-hearted. He loved the attention and adoration. 
Humboldt had a minor stroke in 1856 and another in 1857, and his health declined steadily over the next two years. He worked feverishly, despite his ailments, to finish the fourth and fifth volumes of Cosmos. Humboldt's health faltered in early 1859, and on May 6th of that year, he died. He was 89 years old. His last words were reported to be, quote, How glorious these sunbeams are! They seem to call earth to the heavens. End quote. Humboldt was given a state funeral on May 10th, the streets of Berlin lined with black flags. Tens of thousands of people came out to mourn the legendary man. It was reportedly the largest funeral ever for a private citizen in Germany. Humboldt was buried next to Wilhelm and Carolyn in the family plot. And that ends the life of Alexander von Humboldt. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. When people we cover on the Explorers podcast die, we usually talk about the legacy of that person. Sometimes it's quite impressive, other times the person fades away into obscurity. Humboldt is unique in that what he is famous for isn't his exploring. Instead, his exploring and traveling inspired him to make advances in other fields, mostly science, which in turn have had a greater impact on the world. I want to stress how important Humboldt's journeys and explorations were to his work. All of his life, he will stress to people how important his travels were. The mountains of the Andes, the jungles of the Orinoco, the far reaches of Russia, the mines of New Spain, these all were important to the work that he did. One of the big things we look at with explorers is the places they reached. But Humboldt's idea of discovery and exploration was different from a traditional explorer. Yes, he found places and created maps and charts, just like a traditional explorer, but he recognized new and exciting things all around him. Plants, animals, rocks, even people. These were things often overlooked by the world, yet he saw them and recognized how interwoven they all were. That's vision. In the end, Humboldt was an extraordinary person. He was one of the last great polymaths, a person who mixed so many disciplines together in an increasing world of specialization. And the amazing thing is that Humboldt made science accessible to so many people. 
he would inspire artists, poets, historians, musicians, and writers, as well as scientists. All of these people he helped approach the world in a new way. To just say that Humboldt inspired others, however, doesn't really do justice to the influence that he had on our world in the 19th century. So I want to mention a few of these individuals, just to give you some examples. Humboldt was particularly influential amongst American writers, artists, and naturalists, so you'll note many of these people are Americans. Frederick Edwin Church was one of the most famous landscape painters of his day, and he embraced Humboldt's concept of depicting nature realistically and with impeccable detail. I love Wikipedia's description of Church's work, saying it was, quote, highlighted by his excruciatingly detailed art, end quote. Church was so captivated by Humboldt, he went to South America to follow in his footsteps and painted the volcano Cotopaxi, which Humboldt had climbed three times. And one of his most famous works, The Heart of the Andes, is an idealized landscape set in the South American Andes. It is a huge painting, 5 by 10 feet or 1.5 by 3 meters, and the detail is exquisite. Chimborazo, Humboldt's famed mountain, is in the background. The painting is considered one of Church's finest and is one of the most important works of art by an American artist from the 19th century. It currently hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. By the way, Church had hoped to ship the heart of the Andes to Humboldt, but the latter passed away before it could happen. Another group of people heavily influenced by Humboldt were writers. Edgar Allan Poe was wild by Humboldt's attempt to unify the sciences in cosmos. He would dedicate his final major work to the man, saying, quote, with very profound respect, end quote. Nature writer Henry David Thoreau and poet Walt Whitman were also heavily inspired by Humboldt. Whitman was said to have kept a copy of Cosmos on his desk for inspiration and wrote a poem titled Cosmos. Thoreau's book, Walden, was written in response to the ideas that emerged from Humboldt's works. He often quotes Humboldt in his own writings. All of these people read and adored Humboldt, and they would go on to weave poetry and prose and science together and become leaders in their fields, be it philosophy, poetry, art, or science. Diplomat George Perkins March read Humboldt and became one of the first people in the United States to acknowledge how humans were a contributing factor to the changes in nature. He argued for the protection of the environment because of the economic benefit it brought. Many people consider him America's first environmentalist. Another person I'll mention is Ida Laura Pfeiffer, an Austrian explorer, writer, and ethnologist. Pfeiffer is one of the first female travelers, and she went around the world twice. She was inspired by the personal narrative of Humboldt's and even visited him twice. He would provide her with a letter of introduction in which he asked anyone who honored his name to assist Pfeiffer on her journey as she had a, quote, unconquerable passion to study nature and man, end quote. The last two people I'll mention are giants in their field. The first is Charles Darwin. Darwin's On the Origins of Species is considered to be the foundation of evolutionary biology and one of the greatest scientific works in all of history, and it is Humboldt who inspired the man. Darwin went on a five-year round-the-world journey from 1831 to 1836. This voyage would change science, just as Humboldt's journey had done 30 years earlier. Darwin would bring Humboldt's personal narrative on his voyage. He loved it so much and read it so many times, he knew sections by heart. He said the book, quote, stirred up in me a burning zeal to add even the most humble contribution to the noble structure of natural science, end quote. One of the first places that Darwin visited on his voyage were the Canary Islands, and he was thrilled to see Teda, the volcano that Humboldt had ascended back in 1799. Due to a cholera outbreak, Darwin would not be able to go ashore and climb the mountain himself, which he always lamented. 
Darwin became a collector of species on par with Humboldt, and the more that he traveled and explored, the more he embraced Humboldt's ideas. He would say, quote, I formerly admired Humboldt. I now almost adore him, end quote. And it is interesting that Darwin's research, including that done in South America and the Galapagos Islands, did not produce any struck-by-lightning moments. Like Humboldt, Darwin spent years traveling around the world, observing and recording, and letting his views and ideas mature. His landmark origin of species work would take more than 20 years to actually be written. Anyhow, Darwin would come back to England and publish The Voyage of the Beagle in 1839. It would make him famous. Darwin modeled his own writings after Humboldt's, and someone once complimented him on his, quote, vivid Humboldt-like pictures, end quote. Darwin would send a copy of his book to Humboldt, who was impressed, calling it, quote, excellent and admirable work, end quote. Humboldt even wrote a letter to the Geographical Society in London, saying Darwin's book was, quote, one of the most remarkable that, in the course of a long life, I've had the pleasure to see published, end quote. The two men would meet several times, the first encounter in London in 1842. The 32-year-old Darwin was thrilled to meet his idol, who was 40 years older, and the compliments that he offered. I do love that in this first meeting, the two men were together for three hours, and Darwin barely got a word in. Humboldt's famous ability to talk and talk and talk some more was on full display. The two men would keep in touch over the years, but On the Origin of Species would not be published until six months after Humboldt's death. Humboldt's ideas on evolution, which was then called the transmutation of species, was critical to Darwin's thinking. Humboldt noted that everything was in flux, even the land moved, so why not organic matter? Darwin ran with this idea, adding in things such as species migration. The result was natural selection. You can look back at Humboldt's writings about the plants and animals along the Orinoco River, how there was a food chain and everything struggled to survive. This included the vines that climbed higher and higher, fighting with the trees and other plants for sunlight. Author Andrea Wolfe, in her biography of Humboldt, says this of the two men, quote, Both Humboldt and Darwin had the rare ability to focus in on the smallest details, from a fleck of lichen to a tiny beetle, and then pull back and out to examine global and comparative patterns. This flexibility of perspective allowed them both to understand the world in a completely new way. End quote. The next person I want to mention in relation to Humboldt is John Muir. Muir was a Scottish-born American. He is probably the most important environmental activist in American history, and is also called the father of the national parks. Muir, like all of these people I have discussed, adored Humboldt, owning all of his major works. Some of his own personal copies still exist, and they are filled with hundreds and hundreds of his own comments and ideas. Muir was smart and passionate, and he was more at home in the wilderness than anywhere. His writings would channel an intense love of nature that would be picked up by many Americans. For Muir, protecting the wilderness was about saving the stunning beauty and majesty of nature. Nature, to Muir, was almost a religious experience. Author Andrea Wolfe wrote this in her book, quote, Nature itself, Muir said, was a poet. He just needed to let it speak through his pen. End quote. Muir is famed for his time around Yosemite, and he lobbied to have the area turned into a national park. Also, he would co-found the Sierra Club, today the world's largest grassroots environmental organization. When Muir was 73 years old, his wife passed away, and his two daughters were married and had families of their own. Thus, he set off on another great adventure to South America to follow in the footsteps of Humboldt. He bought a brand new copy of Humboldt's personal narrative, and in 1911, he landed in Brazil. So, there are a bunch of, I think, amazing people directly influenced by the works of Humboldt. 
And all of the stuff they did is linked to Humboldt's journeys throughout the world. It's quite a legacy. Now, I have a few other things I want to talk about regarding Humboldt before we wrap up this final episode in our series. The first thing is to understand a little about the legacy of Humboldt and specifically why he isn't talked about today like he was 100 or 150 years ago. The second thing I want to do is talk about the ways that Humboldt is remembered around the world today. So let us tackle both of these questions together. As we have discussed, Humboldt was wildly famous in the 1800s. In 1869, on his 100th birthday and 10 years after his death, there were celebrations all over the world. In some places, thousands turned out. He was a rock star. Yet today, most people don't know who Alexander von Humboldt is. Why is that? Well, the first thing I'll mention is that Humboldt isn't easy to classify. It's the nature of being one of history's great polymaths. There isn't a single great feat or area of focus or discovery that is easy to associate with the man. I mean, you mentioned Charles Darwin and you can jump right to evolution as his signature thing. Humboldt doesn't have that. At the simplest, we can probably say that Humboldt is the guy who identified and articulate the idea of the world and nature being this intricate, beautiful, interwoven thing. That sounds great, but really, really broad. I think we can say that Humboldt laid on the table a ton of ideas and concepts, and it was for others to carry them forward. He was the inspiration of Darwin and Muir and others. Humboldt's work was simply so wide and touched on so many subjects, he gets lost in the shuffle. The second thing I want to mention is the anti-German sentiment that emerged in the first half of the 20th century. World War I and World War II made people in France, England, and America not the biggest fans of German stuff. This includes Humboldt. And so school books and newspapers and whatever simply dropped any sort of acknowledgement of anything German. Humboldt Street thus became Taft Street, or Humboldt Park became, insert whoever's name, you get the idea. Anyhow, while Humboldt's popularity faded, he never really lost the title of most influential scientist of the 19th century. Instead, we acknowledge that he ceded the overall glory to individuals in more specialized fields, especially as science hurtled forward with new discoveries and revelations. In the end, Humboldt is viewed as the father of ecology and the father of environmentalism. Those are some pretty hefty titles. Interestingly, even today, Humboldt is particularly beloved in Central America, where he is seen as the second discoverer of America. We talked about this in some of our other episodes. He actually saw the people of the New World. He talked to them, listened to their stories, found amazing things about them, even celebrated them. They were not a footnote in the journal of a conquistador or mere savages in the eyes of other explorers. In Ecuador, on Mount Chimborazo, there is a huge monument dedicated to two men. One is Simon Bolivar, the liberator, the George Washington of South America. The other is Alexander von Humboldt. One of the crazy things about looking at the legacy of Humboldt is trying to actually list everything named after the man. It's impossible. There are 20 different species named after Humboldt, including penguins, squids, birds, snails, dolphins, and plants. There are monuments and plaques all over the world dedicated to Humboldt, from Cuba to the United States to Peru to Mexico to Europe, Canada, and more. There are parks, roads, plazas, cities, towns, counties, universities, schools, rivers, lakes, bays, and multiple mountains. There is a glacier and an asteroid with the man's name on it. And let's not forget, he gets an entire current off the coast of South America. So while Humboldt's name doesn't quite resonate with the public like it did 150 years ago, the man is, without question, not forgotten especially by science, where his work is acknowledged and honored. I have a few final comments about Humboldt and this series before we wrap up today. First, I have to say that this was an odd series. 
Humboldt is not your typical explorer, and so much of what we celebrate about the man is not necessarily his explorations and travels, but the work that emerged because of those journeys. It made this series more difficult to put together as I had to go through so much more than usual to tell our story. So I hope I have been able to successfully weave together the adventure part of our tale with the science part. Second, if you want to learn more about Humboldt, start with something like his Wikipedia page. It's a nice, simple way to learn more about the man. If you're looking for a biography of Humboldt, the one I recommend is Andrea Wolf's The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World. I have quoted her quite often in this series, and that's because it's really good. The book has a more modern bent to it, tying Humboldt's work to later individuals and movements, with whole chapters on people like Darwin, Muir, Thoreau, and others. It also has a strong emphasis on the environmental aspect of Humboldt's work, which may or may not appeal to people. The book still goes into depth about Humboldt's life, but as I said, it also looks at those who were inspired by the man. There are lots of other books about Humboldt as well. Many of the older biographies tend to be more traditional type books, which is fine, but they don't necessarily explore the long-term ramifications of Humboldt's work. You can also be brave and dive into Humboldt's own books. They are dense, packed with so much stuff, it can be overwhelming. Also, there are all sorts of versions of these books. Selected writings, abridged versions, etc., etc. It does make it hard. If you want to pick one book to get a feel for Humboldt, I'd recommend Views of Nature, which was published in 1807. It is probably his most accessible book. The final thing I want to talk about is how I have only touched on a fraction of Humboldt's life. It is really amazing to look at all that the man did. And so I encourage you to learn more about the man if what we have talked about strikes a chord. And so that gets us to the end of our series. If we want to finish up with a what did Humboldt do sort of summary, we can say that his work on botanical geography laid the foundation for the field of biogeography. All the stuff that he did is the basis for modern geomagnetic and meteorological monitoring. His collective works are a holistic look at the universe, the idea of an interwoven and interconnected world. All that he did would help introduce ideas such as ecology and environmentalism into science. But probably the greatest thing Humboldt did was inspire others. His brilliance and insight would be critical to the thinking of men such as Charles Darwin and John Muir. That is a pretty amazing legacy. For us at the Explorers Podcast, all of this comes together because of Humboldt's desire to experience the world. He wanted to travel and explore. I love that he found joy in this experience. And I love that he found meaning and value in so many things that people tend to just walk past. Plants, rocks, people, whatever. He saw something special in just about everything. That's a remarkable thing. Anyhow, that is it for our series on Alexander von Humboldt. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Please take care, and I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. A couple of science shows available include Practical AI and the Unbiased Science Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.